Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is our 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. So last week, the top suspect in the 1987 murder of Barbara Blatnick died. We covered this case three years ago in an episode we called Deadly Holidays. Barbara was 17 years old when she was raped and killed and left on an access road near Blossom Music Center in Cuyahoga Falls. And it took decades for DNA technology to catch up. But forensics finally linked a man named James Zastonic to Barbara's murder. His trial was to begin in Summit County this October, but he died of cancer last Tuesday at the age of 69. His death pretty much means Barbara's murder will forever remain open, officially speaking. It's really a similar situation in the 10-minute mystery we did just last week on the Columbus murders of Carolyn Adams and her four-year-old daughter, Amanda. When the top suspect committed suicide without confessing, regardless of whether you think he was guilty or not, the lack of a trial, the inability to present evidence to a jury and have a decision rendered, means there is no official conclusion to that case. Tonight, we have another one that seems destined to remain in eternal limbo. This time, because a jury did not share the opinion of police and prosecutors. It's the story of Shakira Johnson, an 11-year-old girl who disappeared during a block party in her Cleveland neighborhood of Mount Pleasant in 2003. Shakira attended Nathan Hale Junior High School, where she had just started the sixth grade. She lived on Martin Luther King Jr. Drive with her mom, Alyssa Randall, her stepfather, Ralph, and her two brothers, Laquan, who was a year older, and Ralph, a year younger. They called her Kira for short. On September the 13th, 2003, the three youngsters walked a few blocks to a party on East 105th Street and Benham Avenue. Shakira, an energetic youngster who bounced continually like life was a dance, spent the afternoon dancing with other girls, her hair jumping in its ponytail. About 4.30 p.m., she told her brother she was going to walk to Chili's, a store nearby on Union Avenue, to buy a soda. A clerk would later confirm she had been there and that she had purchased some 25-cent bags of Cheetos, her favorite snack. Shakira left the store, but she never made it back to the block party. When she didn't return home with her brothers, family members set out searching for her and spent two hours knocking on doors before deciding to call police. It was just after 9 p.m. Now, this will become a very controversial aspect to the story and be debated for months to come, but Shakira's disappearance didn't qualify for an Amber Alert, that thing that sends out a notice asking for the public's help and keeping an eye out for her. Cleveland police made the argument that they receive about a dozen missing persons reports every day and that Amber Alerts are only issued when there is credible information that a child was kidnapped and in imminent danger of harm. 
And since no one had seen Shakira, either in distress or with a stranger, the system wasn't used. And so police did a foot search of Cleveland's east side. Apparently, Shakira was living in something of a sex offender colony because there were nearly 200 registered sex offenders that lived in that area alone. And police hunted them down for questioning and even arrested a few with outstanding warrants. Investigators also were keeping an eye out for a bright red four-door Ford Escort or Mercury Tracer. Someone said they'd seen the car near the party with a man and a screaming child inside. But authorities warned it could have just been some random dad with his child. A helicopter was sent to circle over the neighborhood and around Shakira's school, and bloodhounds were used to search vacant buildings and lots. The FBI had 20 agents join the hunt. And the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children sent a team to town to make sure a photo of Shakira was faxed to every police department, media outlet, hotel, motel, and convenience store within a 99-mile radius. Shakira's classmates even helped. Her school principal, Joseph Moore, organized volunteer students and staff into groups, and a total of 300 of them spanned out, passing out flyers, tucking them under windshields, and slipping them into screen doors. They also made a list of abandoned houses for police to check. Tension in the community was high. At one point, police had to arrest several men who went to the home of an 18-year-old sex offender and dragged him from the house, terrorizing him in an attempt to extract information about Shakira's disappearance. But authorities never really came close to finding Shakira. Alyssa Randall refused to believe the worst. She was surrounded day and night by friends and family who kept up a prayer vigil and comforted by strangers who stopped by and offered a hug. I feel she is safe and will be home soon, the mother told reporters. She couldn't join the search herself. A car accident just four months earlier had put two plates in her right leg. But she stayed by the phone and the TV, covered in Shakira's favorite horse-themed blanket, and waited for word. I'm trying to be strong. I pray that she's alive. Donations came in, and a reward for information grew to nearly $5,000. On September the 19th, a community-wide candlelight vigil featuring 70 motorcyclists from the Renegades, Hellraisers, and Zulu clubs made sure the missing girl stayed in the forefront of the public's mind. Shakira became a one-word household name in Cleveland. It was a month later, on a Wednesday morning, when police dispatch received a 911 call from a phone booth at a gas station on East 49th Street and Pershing Avenue. The anonymous caller reported seeing a body in a weedy field some distance away. Police descended on the phone booth within minutes, dusting it for fingerprints and taking it for evidence. Meanwhile, detectives in the coroner's office swarmed over the field the caller had sent them to, and, just as promised, they found it, a partially skeletonized body. 
The field was off East 71st Street near Etna Avenue, next to an abandoned warehouse and a silk screening business. The remains were so decomposed, it was impossible to tell if the victim had been male or female, adult or child, even black or white. The location was two miles from the site of the block party where Shakira disappeared, but the coroner had little doubt who it was. The body was nude, but blue jeans and a white t-shirt nearby were exactly like the ones Shakira had been wearing. Also in the field were four bags of Cheetos. A week later, DNA tests confirmed what everyone already knew, but the coroner could never say with certainty how Shakira died. The remains were just too far gone. Hundreds of mourners attended the little girl's funeral at Mount Zion Baptist Church. The crowd overflowed into the parking lots and sidewalk, listened to the sermon through loudspeakers, even filling a church basement where they watched it on closed-circuit television. Even as Shakira was being laid to rest, Cleveland detectives had a favorite suspect. Somehow they had zeroed in on Daniel Hines, a 25-year-old man who had no criminal record but was awaiting trial for the attempted sexual assault of his 13-year-old cousin and attacking her brother when he came to her rescue. Hines lived just two doors from where Shakira was last seen, in a house shared by Hines, his mother, and his sister and brother. Police had started questioning Hines just six days after Shakira's disappearance. They had already searched two homes and towed two cars associated with him. And five days into their investigation, they even persuaded a judge to revoke the man's bond in that other case in order to keep him behind bars. Eventually, police felt they had enough to tie Hines to the death of Shakira and arrested him. The prosecutor sought the death penalty. His trial began in November of 2004, and it lasted five weeks. The prosecutor argued that Shakira's blood was on a tan glove that was found in the basement of the house where Hines lived, that a single fiber found clinging to a trash bag that was at the site near Shakira's body matched upholstery in Hines' van, and that the trash bag itself matched a roll of bags in the Hines' home. Then it was the defense's turn, and they worked hard to pick it all apart. Hines' attorney painted their client as a hapless, learning-disabled handyman incapable of killing someone. They challenged the contention that the trash bag could have come from the Hines' home and raised suspicions about the source of that single fiber that police had found clinging to the trash bag. They pointed out that the glove with a trace of blood on it had been found only after the third search of the home by investigators, and when it was finally found, Hines hadn't been in the house for five weeks. Anybody could have left it there. The defense even found experts to testify that Shakira's body had been dumped in the field just a week prior to being found a period of time during which Hines was in jail. 
In what some say was one of Cuyahoga County's greatest courtroom upsets, the jury acquitted Hines. It was defense attorney Brant Mancino's first murder trial against veteran prosecutors. The prosecutors were stunned. Assistant Prosecutor Richard Bombick suggested to reporters that regardless of the verdict, the case was over. No one else could possibly be prosecuted for this case, he said. It would never be successful. Shakira's family sobbed when the verdict was read. But her mom never stopped believing that one day her daughter's killer would be brought to justice. The Cleveland Plain Dealer reported in 2005 on the second anniversary of Shakira's murder that a vigil was held at the street corner where she disappeared, and there Alyssa made a plea for the killer to turn himself in. I need to know who killed my baby, she said. All I can do now is leave it in God's hands. She also started writing a book to chronicle her pain and her spiritual quest in coping with her daughter's death. She didn't get to finish it. Elisa was just 43 years old when she died of a sudden illness at her Bedford home in 2016. Clearly, many people were convinced Hines was guilty, but we have seen other cases where the top suspect was later proved innocent. And a couple of years ago, Phil Trexler from WKYC in Cleveland did a story that demonstrated why this case can never be completely satisfied short of a confession. He noted another case that had happened more than a dozen years after Shakira was killed when 14-year-old Eliana DeFries was abducted from a Cleveland neighborhood street, violently raped and killed. A man named Christopher Whitaker was convicted of her murder. Now, the attorney who successfully defended Daniel Hines in Shakira's case, Brett Mancino, told Trexler he was absolutely certain his client didn't kill Shakira, but the police should be looking harder at Christopher Whitaker. The similarities were too great to ignore, he said. A young black female victim, same general area, violently assaulted, killed, and dumped. Whitaker at the time of Shakira's death, lived just a mile from where she vanished, and Eliana DeFries's body was found on Fuller Avenue near 93rd Street, just five minutes from where Shakira had been discovered. Mancino said, just based on the similar MOs, the opportunities, his knowledge of the area, I would guess this isn't his first murder. A Cleveland police spokeswoman at the time said, they had no intention of talking to Whitaker or anyone else about the crime, and that as far as they concerned, they got Shakira's killer right the first time. And, truth be told, the years to come would only make people more suspicious of Hines. After he was found not guilty in Shakira's case, he went to trial on that charge of assaulting his two cousins. He was found not guilty of several charges and the jury was hung on the other charges. The prosecutor promised a second trial. In the second trial, he walked again, the jury finding him not guilty of those remaining charges. Hines had dodged three court cases. It was the fourth case that finally got him. 
In 2007, Hines was back in jail, this time arrested for soliciting sex from two 14-year-old girls. He was charged with 16 sex-related counts, and this time it stuck. A jury sent him to prison for several years. He has since been paroled. That's it for our midweek 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-size Ohio mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week. May all of your mysteries have happy endings. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.